listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. I want to talk about how to overcome three big problems in life. You've had them. You might have them now. You're going to have them in the future. That might sound like bad news, but notice I want to talk about how to overcome these three big problems in life. You've got them. You're going to have them. You might have them now, at least one of them, if not all three of them. Turn with me in our Father's Word. Luke chapter 17. Are you ready to hear from God's Word? That's what I'm talking about. Luke 17. Verse 1, and he, Jesus, said to the disciples, this is the ping-pong action, back and forth, Jesus teaching the Pharisees, teaching the disciples, back and forth. Sometimes the disciples are overhearing what Jesus has been saying to the Pharisees. Sometimes the Pharisees have been overhearing what Jesus has been saying to the disciples. So there's teaching, there's seed that's being thrown out by Jesus for everyone to hear. And you've got to ask yourself, who are you today? As you hear the words of Jesus, which one are you? Are you a Pharisee? Or are you a disciple? Are you a dabbler or a disciple? The words of Jesus are particularly targeted for followers of Jesus Christ, those who claim to be followers of God. So if that's you, or if that might be you, if you're interested in following God, these words are significant for you in your life. He said to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. The idea that that's probably maybe younger people or at least younger in their faith listening to the words of Jesus. And the idea is that these people are hungry to follow Jesus, but there are some people who are going to be tempting them to fall into sin. In any crowd of people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, there are some who are more mature in their walk. There's some who are more immature in their walk. Some are just beginning Some are ready to end. Some are older in age, but younger in their maturity. Some are more mature, although they're younger in their age. Jesus is giving a stern warning. Be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, people have used this passage of Scripture and been fascinated with the idea of literally doing something in the physical realm where what Jesus is doing is helping the apostles, helping the disciples, helping those who are followers of Jesus Christ understand the direct correlation between faith and the ability to exercise 
forgiveness, faith, and the ability to overcome temptation. The mulberry tree or the cypress tree, 35 feet tall. Jesus says all you need is faith the size of the smallest of seeds in that day, the mustard seed. That's all you need is some real, authentic mustard seed size faith. All you need is a little bit. You don't need a lot. Jesus says it's not the quantity, it's the authenticity. If you have the real deal, if you have real biblical faith, you can say to the difficulties that are happening in your life, the temptations that are happening in your life, you can handle them. You can look at the issue of unforgiveness in your life, and we all have issues of unforgiveness. And if you don't now, Get ready, this week's gonna be difficult. It's coming your way. You're going to be tested in the area of forgiving somebody, forgiving an institution, forgiving a group of people. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's going to happen to you. Now notice how Jesus kicks this whole thing off. Temptations to sin are bound to come, but woe to him through whom those temptations come. Now, I had a foolish interaction that I engaged in on Twitter. Some of you have Twitter accounts. My Twitter handle is at GodFactorMike. And uh, I got into a discussion with an atheist in London who wanted me to debate him over the existence of God. Now, the first thing I wasn't going to do is belittle the existence of God since I know that people are created in the image of God, in his likeness, the pinnacle of God's creation, as the book of Genesis says. God created man, unlike any of the other creatures, in his own image. In the image of God, he made them male and female. God made them. Gave us the charge to go into the world, multiply, be fruitful. I was not not going to belittle the existence of God by taking my thumbs and limiting a discussion about the existence of God to 140 characters a tweet with a guy in London who, who doubts the existence of God. How would that do justice to the idea of me being created in the image of God or him being created in the image of God? I'm going to stoop to that level, use my thumbs, and try to debate the existence of God? I'd be stupid, wouldn't I? I mean, I do have a job. I know I work only on Sundays and even then for maybe an hour or so. (laughs) So what I did was I threw down a challenge to debate him. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll pay your airfare. Come over to the United States. I'll debate you in a real debate before a live audience and we'll really go at it. He said, no, no, no. I want to debate you on Twitter. 140 characters with our thumbs. I said, no, I'm serious. Wouldn't you like to come to the United States? All expenses paid. We'll go at it with a real debate worthy of the topic that we're looking to tackle, the existence of God. And I'll say this to the podcast audience, the same challenges out there. I will debate any atheist from any part of the world. You're invited to come here. We will pay the expenses. We will debate you in a live format right here on the platform about the existence of God. It's out there in the podcast world. It will not be retrieved. That that invitation will not be retracted. Take me up on the offer and we'll go at it. You just need to check your anger at the door because you meet a lot of angry atheists meet a lot of angry people from any religion from that matter. But this guy was angry because part of his argument was, how can the God of the Bible be a loving God 
where he has a nation go against another nation. You say, the Bible says, there's accounts there, you can read them for yourself. That God raised up one nation against another nation. How can God be so loving to do that and have the other nation who you say is being judged, who the Bible says is being judged, have all of their livestock obliterated, put to death, have all of their children put to death? How can God be a loving God and have that happen? Because you don't understand, Mr. Atheist, that God is not just a loving God, he's also a holy God. And God will use people and nations as his instruments to exercise the object lesson of his holiness. See, if we're members of the nighttime Bible reading society, if we read the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, and one eye closed, and we miss portions of the Bible, main portions of the Bible, we, we recreate God in our own image. And we have only a loving God, but that's not the God of the Bible. He's also a holy God. We don't have just a holy God. He's also a loving God. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's just. He's true. There's no darkness in him whatsoever. In fact, the Bible says that he dwells in unapproachable light. He shrouds himself with light as with a garment. And so God is perfectly within his rights as God to judge a nation when that nation wants nothing to do with him. And there are instances, there have been instances in history as recorded in the Bible where a nation's sin has been so serious, so sick, that God had no other choice because he is loving and concerned about the spread of the sickness than to deal with the sickness by sending judgment from one nation to another. And God is so loving and just that he doesn't play favorites. There have been instances where the same nation that God used to judge another nation as God's handiwork, as his instrument, then with the passage of time received a similar judgment by God because God is no respecter of persons. Read about it, the nation of Israel Judged repeatedly, the Jewish people judged because they forsook their God. They turned their back on God. God is not a respecter of persons. So when we have the love of God, but we don't talk about the holiness of God, that's not the God of the Bible. When we have a God who's holy, but we don't have a just God, we don't have a merciful God, that's not the God of the Bible. You have to read all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to get a complete picture of the God of the Bible and then we can debate about your opinion versus mine or your opinion versus anybody's. But the truth is that the God of the Bible is a complete God and he does things at his pleasure for his purpose, not ours. And people might say, well, you know what? There have been a lot of things that have been done in the name of Christianity that are distasteful and detestable and disgusting. Actually, I would say there have been a lot of things done in the name of every religion that have been distasteful and disgusting. In fact, there have been a lot of things that atheists have done that have been distasteful and disgusting. In fact, when you really look at it, the whole human race has done disgusting, terrible, hypocritical things. As Charles Barkley would say, terrible, terrible, terrible. We've all done terrible things, disgusting things. It's not unique to people of faith. It's unique to people. People do terrible things. 
And nobody today can say that they are killing in the name of God because the Bible's not being written today. The Bible records things that God told people to do as instruments of his judgment, but when the Bible was finished, nobody gets to exercise the judgment hand of God any further. The book is closed, it's finished, cannot be added to, cannot be subtracted from. There are things in this book where God records history as it happened, and he doesn't necessarily approve of it, but it's an accurate portrayal of what happened. And then there are instances in the Bible where history is recorded, and it is not only an accurate portrayal of what happened, but also what God commanded. And we've got to be able to make a distinction between what God commanded and what is simply recorded. There is and there are differences between the two. Don't think that just because someone was a hypocrite somewhere or somebody blew it somewhere that we do what no new mother would do with her own baby. Mothers, if you've got a baby, an infant that's maybe three months old, four months old, maybe the baby's small enough where it can't totally hold itself up. You get a basin, or sometimes it used to be done more so, where you put the baby into the kitchen sink. Yes, I know that might sound gross and disgusting, but you know what I'm talking about? You put some no tears soap into that basin or into that sink, and you hold that baby while you wash it. And if it's in a basin, what do you do after you've washed that baby and after you dried it off? You throw out the baby and the bathwater, don't you? Come on, of course you don't. You don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. How many of you enjoy eating out in a restaurant? How many of you have ever eaten in a bad restaurant? You still go to restaurants to eat food? Sure you do. You're probably going to one today. How many of you have uh, a car and you drive a car or you have driven in a car? Have you ever gotten a flat tire? Have you sworn off driving in a car? How many of you have experienced bad weather? You ever gone outside and have bad weather? Do you still go outside and enjoy good weather? How many of you have ever traveled someplace and had a bad vacation? You had a bad trip somewhere. Have you sworn off going on vacation ever again? No, you haven't. How many of you have uncomfortable clothes as you're sitting there listening? You ever bought a pair of pants that you thought were gonna fit you good and they didn't fit you so good? Have you sworn off clothing? I hope not. How about uh, ladies? Have you seen a homely ombre in your life? You ever seen an unattractive man in your life that didn't keep you from marrying your Prince Charming, did it? Your handsome hunk. Men, have you seen some unattractive women in the course of your life? It didn't keep you from marrying your queen, the most beautiful woman on the face of the earth, right? There are exceptions all around but you haven't let them deter you from eating at a restaurant, driving in a car, wearing clothing, getting married, enjoying life? Why would you let somebody's hypocrisy turn you off to discovering and pursuing God? Why would you do that? Well, you'd only do it if you let yourself become self-deceived. You see, if we look at Romans chapter five, verse 12, we understand that the biblical account of the world that we live in makes sense. All we're doing is accepting what makes sense when we say that we live outside of paradise. Paradise has been lost. Haven't you noticed that? We live outside of a garden and now this world is overgrown with weeds. 
overgrown with weeds. Look with me at Romans chapter five, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Mr. Atheist, Mr. Agnostic, Miss Atheist, Miss Agnostic, we agree about the same thing. The world is a terrible place. Terrible, terrible. The world is a terrible place. The Bible says so. The Bible explains why it's a terrible place because you and I are living outside of Eden in a world overgrown with weeds. We can agree on that. The Bible makes sense. Jesus is authenticating the biblical account. We live in a world where sin is not just happening, sin is rampant. Weeds abound every place you look. You have a problem with weeds in this world? The sin in this world? Good. God has asked you to be a gardener and pull some out. That's what a disciple does. Temptations to sin are bound to come. Don't be surprised at the difficulties that are happening in this world, living outside of Eden. That's what happens when we're outside of paradise. Weeds grow up in an imperfect environment. Go get busy and pull some out. That's the whole point. Don't let the existence of evil deter you from being a factor of influence against it. Let that be motivation for you. Let it inspire you to be a disciple of the living and true God, a disciple of Jesus, and get busy, put on your gardening gloves and go pull up some weeds for Jesus Christ. That's what a disciple does. Now notice what Jesus says. He talks about a millstone. Now a millstone, if you turn it sideways or if you look at a millstone from the side, would look kind of like a washer, not a washing machine, a washer that you would put a bolt through. You know, that type of a washer you get at a hardware store. A millstone, typically several hundred pounds, sometimes half a ton, sometimes a ton, can be a very heavy object. In fact, the heavier, the more effective it is when you have a, a bottom stone with a millstone on the top of it and the one top one is rotated, usually with a large stick attached to it and a couple of people pushing it or sometimes a donkey, in this case, a donkey, or a horse pushing this millstone. You didn't get what I said, did you? <laughs> pushing this millstone and you have grain in between these millstones being ground down and then to a powder form and then it can be used for flour. Sometimes olives where the olives are being pressed down in the first extra virgin press, cold press version of the olive oil comes out. That's where all that comes from. This millstone, this very heavy stone being used. Now Jesus says temptations to sin are bound to come, but woe to those through whom those temptations come. Woe means woe. It's one thing to be a victim of sin, it's another one to be a proponent of it. In fact, I want to talk about two particular areas of sin. We could talk about many more. And you can look at all the different creative ways to sin by reading Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is a handbook for helping you and me understand all the different ways to sin and God's remedy against it. But I just want to look at two of them. One of them is conversation. 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 
Very easy today in our world with social media and smart devices that make us do pretty dumb things at times on Facebook and on Twitter where you can say things, you can write things that someone will read and then they will be tempted to sin. Someone will hear things that maybe you say in a live setting that now instead of saying them face to face, we can hide or cower behind the smart device and do pretty stupid things at times and gossip or slander. See, the idea of gossip is saying something about something, somebody. Gossip is saying something about somebody that the person who's hearing it really doesn't need to hear. It doesn't have to be bad information. It just is not necessary information. See, you and I need to make a distinction between what's necessary and what we want. Sometimes our needs are different than our wants. We think we need to say something to somebody. No, you don't need to say it to everybody and anybody. What you need to do is pour it out before God and process it before God before you say it to somebody else because once you get it out there, it's not retractable. Gossip is just sharing somebody else's news that that other person who you're telling it to doesn't really need to know. They might want to know, and you might want to tell them, but you need to hold a tight rein on that tongue. Don't let your fingers do the walking. Refrain from it. You know, slander is gossip on steroids, where you're no longer sharing neutral information in an inappropriate manner, but now you're saying something outright negative about somebody who doesn't need to hear it. So you will twist their perception about the person or people you're talking about. It's tempting somebody else to sin. Remember that the next time you pick up your smartphone, the next time you pick up your tablet, the next time you're sitting at your computer, imagine yourself wearing a millstone around your neck because you might as well be. Jesus says you'd be better off You'd be in a better position to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. A hopeless, helpless situation than to cause somebody who's interested in walking with God to walk away from God. To cause somebody who's interested in growing in God to stumble. That's the word that's used here, a stumbling block. Stumbling blocks are bound to come in this world. Jesus not not debating the issue of living outside of Eden. He's giving credibility to the fact that we live outside of Eden. The idea is that you're not to put something in somebody else's path that causes them to trip. Help them walk. Don't mess up their walk. That's the idea that's being presented here. And so you and I have to be careful. The Jewish idea of gossip or slander Listen to this, the Jewish idea, which is a biblical idea of gossip and slander is that whenever somebody gossips or slanders, you kill, figuratively speaking, you kill at least three people. Three, at least. Number one, you kill yourself. Number two, you kill the person that you spoke about. And number three, you kill the person you spoke to. Now multiply that if you're saying things to more than one person. And if you're talking about more than one person, you can just multiply that. Temptations to sin 
are bound to come. Don't be part of it. It is so serious that Jesus says, you don't even begin to understand how serious it is. And this is given to the disciples. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you must take seriously your charge to be salt and light, not a lemon souring the world where you go, where you live, where God has commissioned you and sent you. You are to be salt and light. And one of the ways that we lead others into temptation and one of the ways that we're led into temptation is in our area of conversations and our communication and how we talk. And the second way, I'm only bringing up two, you can connect the dots, is in this area of clothing. Clothing, tempting people. Giving in to temptation just by something as simple as clothing. Now, I was at an amusement park yesterday and I was on a couple of rides, but the thing that was most amusing is some of the sights that I saw at the amusement park. You know what I'm saying? Those ladies, I, I say this respectfully, sometimes, you know, you can wear tights, but just because it's permissible doesn't mean it's beneficial. And I'm not talking about those who would make a red-blooded male stumble that, you know, that type of a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model is wearing that, that kind of a set of tights. I'm not talking about that. There are some older women who wore some tights that I stayed up late last night <laughs> trying to take my thoughts captive because I knew if I went to bed, I'd be having nightmares. And there was a woman who went a little bit overboard with her tattoos. You know anybody who's gone overboard with tattoos? She had a low cut that needed to be a high cut, but it was purposely low cut because she had one and a half, two inch letter words, because I was that close at one point as I was standing in line to get on a particular ride. And right there on top of the low cut, right on the edge was this word that she had tattooed because she wants everybody to read the word and live on the edge of her low cut. She wants everybody to read that word. And I saw it, because you can't help it. Sometimes you just, you know, you're out there living life, and <laughs> there it is. And even now, sweet Jesus, take that thought out of my mind. <laughs> Ladies, you have no idea how what you wear affects red-blooded men. You have no idea how it affects red-blooded men. You, no idea whatsoever. And you have no idea which red-blooded men it's going to affect. So you might think it's gonna turn on the kind of guy that would be a hunk, that you would want to be attracted in you, that you would wanna fish for that kind of a guy and get your hook in him. You might think that it's gonna attract that kind of a guy. No, when you wear clothing, you're out there, baby. And when you're out there, every red-blooded guy is gonna look at you. Sometimes they'll be 60 and 70 years old. Some of them might be recovering or maybe not so recovering sex offenders. Men addicted to pornography who you just helped in a major way get back to their computer as quickly as possible. 
Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to those through whom they come. Ladies, remember that the next time you're getting ready to slip into a pair of tights that are way too tight or to put on that low cut that's way too low, imagine yourself putting on a millstone instead because you might as well be. Put on that millstone and wear it well because you might as well be. Fathers and mothers, pay attention to what your daughters are wearing for the love of God, literally. Educate them Let them listen to this podcast to get it into them. It's better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and spend a lifetime with an orthopedic surgeon or a chiropractor trying to get their back problems fixed than to cause somebody else to sin. Your clothing matters. Your conversation matters. A disciple of Jesus Christ is paying attention paying attention to God's call on your life to be a factor of influence and not to be a hindrance. We live outside of Eden in a fallen world overgrown with weeds. Get fed up with the weeds. Jesus is fed up with the weeds. Go pull some. Don't plant some. Go pull some weeds out. Be part of the solution to this problem. The atheist recognizes we have a problem. The agnostic recognizes we have a problem. Everybody in every major world religion recognizes we have a problem, but we have the answer. His name is Jesus Christ, and you are part of the solution. Don't be part of the problem. Disciples are to be part of the solution by putting the Word of God into practice and pulling up the weeds every place we go. Jesus is serious here. Look with me at verse three. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him half of those times. Hmm. Don't you love the simple deep words of Jesus, doesn't say that, does it? If he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You must forgive him. Not you should, not you could, maybe you could. Why would God ask us to do something if it was impossible to do? He never does it. God always and only asks us to do things that he knows we can do, but it's only done through the supernatural enabling of the Holy Spirit. How many of you have struggled with forgiving somebody for something they did against you, something they did against somebody you know. Those of you who are not raising your hands are about to enter that sometime in your future. It's coming, and this is not a fortune cookie I'm giving you. It's truth of living outside of Eden. Somebody's gonna do something to you, and you're gonna be pretty ticked off at them. Two things that are a requirement of a disciple. Notice Jesus says repent. If he repents, he says it more than once. If he repents, if he repents. Repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind that leads to a change in action. A change of mind, a change of heart that leads to a change of action. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, your lifestyle should be changing. Your lifestyle should be changing. You should be maturing in your walk with Christ. That's what repentance is. You see, God has not just called you and me, those of us who have given our lives to Christ, to repenting one time when we come to know Christ. It's not just coming to know Christ and 
asking for forgiveness of all our sins. There are sins that you've committed, sins of omission and sins of commission that you're not even aware of right now. Hasn't that happened to you where you're driving down the road in your car? You know, the one that had a flat tire but you fixed and got back into? Hasn't that happened to you where you're driving down the road in your car and God brings to your remembrance something that you failed to do that you should have done? Or something that you did that you shouldn't have done? Or somebody who you need to forgive whom you haven't forgiven. You see, that's the second key characteristic of a disciple. You're characterized as being a forgiver of offenders. This issue of unforgiveness is so big, so massive, so huge, so derailing that it is the majority reason of why we spend our time in pastoral counseling, helping other people. The majority of our time spent in counseling others usually is traced back to a unforgiveness issue where somebody is stuck. Can't get out. I've got a 2002 Volkswagen Jetta TDI. I got it four years ago with 97,000 miles on it. Now, those of you who are Volkswagen enthusiasts and you're diesel enthusiasts, this is a diesel, that's what it stands for, turbo diesel injection. That model and year is only to be outdone by the 2003 Volkswagen Jetta TDI. The perfect convergence of machinery and automotive excellence and 42 miles per gallon without it being modified, and mine was modified, so I get even better. And I know what you're wondering, you're saying, ah, but is it automatic or manual transmission? It's a manual transmission. Now I have you salivating, which means optimum performance, and now it only has 147,000 miles on it, which means for a diesel engine, for that particular model, I'm not even at the halfway point in terms of longevity. Diesel engines for those cars are expected to get at least 300,000 miles if they're well-maintained, and mine is. I use synthetic motor oil. I got it for a song with 97,000 miles on it. Have a sunroof in it, wonderful car. But you know, I had to have my timing belt replaced, and everybody knows you don't have to have a Volkswagen TDI to know that when you replace your timing belt, you also replace the water pump, right? but that's not far enough in a 2002 Volkswagen Jetta TDI. You can't just replace the timing belt and the water pump. You have to replace the rollers, excuse me. And it has to be done by a certified VW technician because if the rollers aren't properly replaced with genuine Volkswagen parts and you went through all the problem of having your timing belt replaced and your water pump replaced, you can be driving thinking you're having a happy day and all of a sudden you're on the side of the road because something went wrong with that incorrectly installed inferior equipment part that was put into your car. So you will not let somebody who is not qualified work on your diesel Volkswagen Jetta TDI. You just won't do it. And likewise, in the house of God, this idea of understanding repentance as the new way of life must be embraced for anybody 
who's in a position of influence in the church. This idea of forgiving other people must be into the spiritual DNA of anybody and everybody who's in a position of influence in the church. You wouldn't let a crazy non-diesel auto mechanic work on your diesel engine, would you? Why would you let somebody who doesn't understand the fundamentals about the Christian life, repentance and forgiveness, be in a position of influence? You don't have to be in a position of influence as a follower of Jesus Christ to get stuck in the stuff. I grew up not too far from here, a little over two hours from here on a small farmette in New Jersey. I know you think that's a contradiction of terms, but it happened and it happens. It's called the Garden State for a reason. If you haven't visited there, go check it out and get yourself outside of Newark, New Jersey, where you'll probably fly into. It's called the Garden State on purpose. 26 acre farmette and we had beef cattle. Well, I had the task with my brothers at times to go out and clean out the manure in the barn. No teenager in their right mind likes cleaning up cow manure with the straw and the hay mingled into it. You wanna talk about making bricks with straw? I have my share of seeing cow manure firmly cemented together, almost impervious to anything but a neutron bomb. Well, it wasn't in that situation when my brothers and I let it go to the point of neglect. Eventually, we come to the realization that, hey, this stuff is now shin high, and the higher it gets, the more the cows scream and the more of a a job I'm going to have. So we'd eventually decide, I decided, I remember on several occasions, to back up our garden tractor with the wagon behind it into that area where that cow manure was. And you wouldn't just walk into that area wearing tennis shoes. You have to put a pair of boots on because this stuff is shin high. So you put your pair of boots on and sometimes I wouldn't wear socks in those boots because what do you have to? It's only gonna be a temporary thing. You clean out the manure, you shovel it, you're on your way. Well, the problem is when you wear these boots and the stuff is now shin high and squishing, And you're in a hurry because you want to go play baseball with your buddies or throw a football around. You just put those boots on, you don those boots, and you quickly make your way over to the other side of the barn until suction occurs. And your boot gets stuck behind you in the stuff that's up to your shins. But your momentum is going because you're in a hurry and your foot comes out and lands while the boot stays in the stuff and your barefoot feels the warmth (laughs) and the gushiness. And all you see is your shin standing there. You'd think that I would learn after having that happen once or twice or three times that I would change my ways, but I never did. I would continually go back to the barn when the manure had been piled up too far and I had let too much time pass and the same situation would happen to me with the suction and the boot and my foot right in the shin deep stuff. And then I would get in that tractor and I would take it down into the field, about four acres, back it up into this manure pile that we later on used for fertilizer and I'd get all the stuff out of the back of the tractor wagon use my broom to push it all out, have a nice clean time, get back onto that tractor and hit it in drive and I'd be going nowhere. 
because one of those wheels would be all clogged with the stuff. And it doesn't matter whether I gave it more gas, up the throttle, I'd just spin faster and faster until I would stop the thing and get off and take a rock or take a log, a stick, something, and put it in front of the wheel to get myself out because stuff had filled up in the tire. And in your life and mine, that's what happens to many believers. They say they're followers of Jesus Christ, but they got stuff that's holding them back and you're going nowhere. You're spinning in the shin-high stuff. You're just spinning and spinning. You see, one of the saddest things is to see somebody who's a sick saint. Happens all the time. Somebody who's been a supposed follower of Jesus Christ for many years, maybe been in ministry for many years, and instead of getting traction with their lives, they're stuck just spinning, 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 going nowhere, stuck in shin-high depth stuff because they will not forgive somebody. They have not forgiven somebody. And that's what gets them stuck. And what does Jesus say in verse three? Pay attention to yourselves. Would you pay attention to yourselves? Life on autopilot results in unforgiveness. Life on autopilot results in giving in to temptation, not caring about tempting other people, but not so for the disciple. The real follower of Jesus Christ is alert, paying attention to temptation, being alert to the possibility of being led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. The real follower of Jesus Christ deals candidly with unforgiveness issues, Forgiving other people because that's the primary characteristic of somebody who is really a disciple of Jesus Christ. How do you know if somebody's a disciple of Jesus Christ? Look with me. Ephesians chapter four, verse 32. How do you handle the issue of unforgiveness? Look with me at Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you, did Jesus forgive you of all of your sins or some of them? Every single one of them. If he didn't forgive you of all your sins, then you're still dead in your sins and do not have eternal life. Do not have harmony with God. In Christ, God forgave you every single one of your sins and fundamental paramount characteristic of the life of a disciple compared to a Pharisee, compared to a dabbler, is that a disciple is a forgiver of offenders. Characteristically, how much so? Jesus said it elsewhere, seven times 70, when the disciples came and said, how often? Jesus says, if the course of one day, somebody comes to you and repents, they're genuine in their repentance, and they say, I'm sorry. You've got to forgive them. You must forgive them. In fact, if you don't, you're a walking contradiction, not a living sacrifice. One of the saddest things to see in the Christian life is to see somebody who's been around for a long time, gave their life to Jesus Christ many years earlier, 
maybe served in some ministry capacity or another for a number of years, maybe has alphabets in front of their name, alphabets in back of their name, a title, something like that, maybe been used of God in the past, wonderful you've been used by God in the past. What's happening in the present? But one of the worst things to see is somebody who should be much further in their walk with Christ, but they're stuck in the shin-high stuff of unforgiveness, and they're going nowhere, exerting energy, spinning their wheels, and not getting out of what would be so easy to take care of for God. See, repentance, that lost art, which needs to be rediscovered and fanned into flame in the life of a believer, is to say, I'm sorry, and to mean it, to truly repent and ask for forgiveness, and then also to grant forgiveness when repentance has taken place. You see, my friends, there is no gospel without forgiveness. There is no gospel without forgiveness, and you cannot be a disciple of that gospel and that God if you don't grant forgiveness as well. Not once in a while, not on the terms and conditions that you think it should be granted. Jesus says seven times in the course of a day. The idea is however often it might be, if there's repentance, you are to be a, a person who embraces this idea of reconciliation. When repentance is real and forgiveness is genuine, reconciliation happens and that is the gospel in a nutshell. While you were a sinner, while I was a sinner, Christ died for you. He took all of your sins, nailed it in Christ on the cross. We see how absolutely ridiculous it is to not be forgiving and to call ourselves a disciple of Jesus. Well, what about if that person, what about you? Pay attention to yourselves, Jesus says. Pay attention to yourselves. Do you understand how serious it is? What is at stake? Other people are looking at the way you handle situations. Yes, they are in your world. The world that God has given you as the person of influence, it might be small, it might be large. It's as large as God has determined and therefore significant. People are watching you to see if you are putting your money where your mouth is, where your mind is. You see, to read the Bible is to think about God. To live the Bible is to walk with God. There's a world of difference. To read the Bible is to think about God. Wonderful. But to live the Bible is to walk with God. And that's how we overcome temptation to sin. That's how we overcome tempting people to sin and avoiding wearing that millstone. That's how we avoid walking in unforgiveness. It does come down to faith. God wants to give you the ability to walk in mustard seed size faith. That's all you need. You need the real deal and Jesus will offer it to you. The disciples said, look with me at verse five. Luke 17, the apostles said to the Lord, 
It's good that they realize that this is, since they're going to take on the baton after Jesus, at least 11 out of the 12, one was a backstabber. It's good that they realize we can't do this naturally. You've got to give us the ability to believe what otherwise we will not, we do not believe. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. How do you build your faith? Your faith is important to your ability to forgive. Your faith is important to your ability to resist temptation and not to be a stumbling block for somebody else leading them into temptation. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, a verse that should be committed to the memory of everybody. So faith comes from. In other words, faith is the byproduct of something else. It's the result of something, and here it is. Golden nugget for you. How do you overcome the three big traps that come your way, the three big obstacles in your life? The idea of temptation, the idea of an unforgiving spirit, and the faith crisis. Here it is. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's through the being in the Bible. It's through reading the scriptures and applying the scriptures and getting them deep down inside of you. That faith is built up. You exercise Spiritual muscle building by lifting the word of God, by getting it into you. The more you read the Bible, the more the life of the Bible comes out. It's not just, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It's not just reading the Bible. It's being committed to walking with God. That's why you read the Bible. There are many people, the Pharisees, thousands of them in Jesus' day, knew the Bible probably better than most of us, knew the Old Testament better than most of us but they weren't putting it into practice. Their hearts were far from it. D.L. Moody said it so well when he said this book, speaking of the Bible, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's as you read the Bible, as you apply the Bible, as you put the Bible into action, into practice, you make a transition from merely thinking about God to walking with God. And the three big problems, the three big traps that come your way in the course of your life, temptation, unforgiveness, and crisis of faith will be put in their place. And you will take your next steps with God and walk with him. Your life will grow and develop and mature, and you'll be more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.